You're now listening to the Laravel Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Laravel Podcast Season 6. I remembered it this time. I'm one of your co-hosts, Matt Stauffer, and I got Taylor with me. Taylor, you want to say hi to everybody? Hey, everybody. All right. Hope everyone's doing well. <laughs> yeah. So before we actually get to the primary topic for today, Taylor, you mentioned that you have been scouting locations for Laracon next year. Do you want to kind of share yes. anything about what you've been doing? Yeah. So I've been to two different locations, which I tweeted about. The first was Las Vegas. I toured a venue there called the Downtown Vegas Event Center. It is a really cool space. It is a quasi-outdoor space, <laughs> which is very different than any other Laracon we have done. So picture a big lawn with a stage where you can pull out food trucks. How You can have beanbag toss. You can have shuffleboard, all sorts of mm. games out on the lawn. And then there's a huge, maybe 10,000 square foot tent. Wow. That has another stage, which is where seating would be. The stage would be presentations would be. So it would be almost like a Laracon festival. Mm. It feels very much like a music festival type of venue. But in May in Las Vegas, I do have fears that the temperature yeah. would be too warm. So under the tent, it is obviously much cooler than out on the lawn by, you know, a good number of degrees. But if it's like 110, yeah. it you know, it's going to be like 90 on the tent, yeah. best case. So, you know, well, it's tough because it would be such an awesome space if it was like the weather was cooperative and it would be just like probably the yeah. most memorable, cool yeah. Laracon we could do. Got a lot of potential downside. But anyway, so that's that's one yeah. spot. And yeah, it does have some downside. The other spot I went to yesterday is in Dallas. It's in Deep Ellum part of Dallas, which is kind of a hip, trendy part of Dallas with lots of cool restaurants and and bars and and fun stuff. It's a place called The Factory. It's a very similar vibe to our Nashville venue, if anyone was there. So it's kind of got that industrial warehouse type of vibe, except it's a, a quite a bit larger space. So it can accommodate a lot more people. There's also an upper level with seating oh, cool. where you can still see the stage and everything. And it kind of wraps around the main lower level. So definitely lots of room there. Really cool spot. There's no blockers actually to using that as, as a venue. So just kind of got to make the final decision okay. and go from there. Well, I also know that Laracon Australia is coming up, I think maybe next week or something after that. So, so it yeah, might be going week, on when we actually release yeah. this. And are you going to be there? I couldn't remember if you're going or not. Yeah. And we'll be unveiling. Okay, got it. No, I won't be there. So, so Jessica Archer here at the Laravel team, she's going to be unveiling oh, Laravel cool. Pulse you know, on behalf of the yeah. Laravel company. So that's a new open source free package we have coming out that I think, I think people will like. It's sort of built out of our, some of the real world problems we ran into mm -hmm. with Laravel Forge. And so it's another one of those things where we're just kind of scratching our own itch and hopefully other people find it. it useful too. Okay. Yeah. So well, on to the primary good. topic of the day, we've had a lot of people asking us questions about what us building an application, both for you at Laravel and then also me at Titan for our clients and internally, what would we do when we you know, start a new app and they've started with what, which of the particular tech stacks and where are you going to host it, deploy it, what packages. And so I figured we're just going to kind of walk through this and each of us say like, if I were to build a new app today, you know, obviously there's a whole bunch of it depends, but like sort of what's your default of like the packages, the third party services, local development, all that kind of stuff. And we're just going to kind of walk through all those. And that's going to be the, the topic for today. So let's imagine that each of us was building a software as a service. I actually have a particular one in mind that I recently built for a client that it was something that I was kind of like leading. And if we were to need to, you know, build thing, get it deployed right away, we don't know the scale quite yet. 
Uh, we know we need to build, you know, user flow, like user gathering new information and then displaying information on dashboards, maybe a backend admin panel. And we need to get the thing up and running in a way where users can start using it right away. Right. And there's probably other kind of nuances we need, but that's kind of like the basics. So we're not talking about massive architectural things like Vapor um, quite as much. We're talking about something that maybe is a little bit more in the, the Forge space or even less complex than Forge. You're kind of generic SaaS. So for starters, Taylor, if you were to just hit Laravel new today, what of the starter kits would you use? <laughs> oh my gosh, this is such a tough question. Not saying um, that's the best, right? But just kind of like, what's your comfort space, or what's your? It depends. I think the it depends part would be: Am I going to have to reach for some pretty complicated JavaScript, maybe React mm-hmm. components that I know I want to use that are third party things? I don't know. Like for example, like Tailwind, they're building their new Catalyst. UI kit yeah. for React. Do I feel like yeah. I want to use those dialogues, that stuff? If so, I'm probably going to use the inertia with React stack. If I don't feel like I'm going to use that, I feel like the Livewire stack is super fast and productive in terms of developer yeah. feedback and iteration. The other thing I really like about Livewire or would be part of the it depends question is the server side rendering aspect. If I feel like mm-hmm. the site it's really important that the site is server side rendered for SEO purposes or whatever, then I would kind of lean towards Livewire because with inertia, I have to run the separate SSR server, which is not a huge deal, but it's like another process I have to kind of maintain and think about. Uh, Whereas with Livewire, of course, server side rendering is just sort of free. So I don't, but I would, I would be torn. And then there's a whole nother discussion um, about if I go inertia, the view or react question, and yeah. I love Vue, like I have always loved Vue, yes. but but it feels like all the big brains are using React for some reason, um, yeah. and a lot of yeah. the the third party, I mm-hmm. guess you could say, innovation or development and component libraries just seem to be in React, which is kind of a bummer because I really enjoy yeah. Vue. So if I decide to go inertia, I'd be really torn in that regard as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I first of all, I'd have the, the same response. If I don't know I'm going to need JavaScript, I'm going to do inertia. Or, I'm sorry, I'm going to do Livewire because it's not just the server-side rendering, but like the more code bases I have to keep in my head, like even if I'm the only one developing it, the more, oh, the views are here and the this or there, I think inertia really kind of doing a single like not doing two separate code bases helps, right? There's not a view code base and a, and a Laravel code base. It's one. And then doing inertia helps even further because now it's not like I'm building an API and an SPA. It's more like I'm building this traditional thing. But even then, if I don't have to do the JavaScript front end, I'm not the sort of person who's like, given the choice between Blade and Vue templates or Blade and React templates, I prefer JavaScript. No, given the choice between the two, if all of the things are equal, I'm always going to choose Blade. I'm always going to choose kind of staying as naturally Laravel as possible. If I do find myself in that circumstance where I have to choose, like what you're saying, I personally feel that Vue is easier to onboard people into. Vue makes more sense in the same ways of thinking that Laravel is. And Vue is easier for me to just kind of like kind of jump my brain back into it. It doesn't require quite as much of like a mental shift. And everybody's working in, in React. And I don't even know if it's because, um, I mean, I, I hear you 100% the big brain thing, but it's like... That the the impetus of the front end ecosystem is with React and has been for a long time. Every single boot camp, every single startup, every single UI kit, every single everything is in React. And and that does not mean that React is better. It just means it's been chosen more. And by having yeah. been chosen more, it means it's it easier to hire. To be chosen more. <laughs> yes. 
and that means you're going to get more resources. But also one of the things we have to think about at Titan is if we're going to hand this project off to the internal development team and they have to hire, what are we setting them up for that allows them to hire the best? And one of the things we're finding is that one of the downsides of choosing, you know, less popular in the front end things is that it's harder for them to hire a view programmer than it is for them to hire a react programmer. And sometimes it's even harder for them to hire a live wire capable programmer than for them to hire a front end capable programmer and then a Laravel person separately. Right. So we're like Mm kind of asking these questions actively of like, how do we help people get set up and, and not just what makes me productive, but also what allows us to reach for external tools, what allows this kind of company to hire these people. And unfortunately, like this is not anti view. We still use view more than we use react to Titan, but to your point, there's just so many things that are like kind of moving in the React direction that like I would definitely have to ask all those. If it's just yeah. me, I probably will still pick Livewire most of the time just because I know that I'm super productive there. If I'm a solo developer, this is going to be the easiest setup for me to have it all in my brain. If I'm building for the eventuality of a bigger team and knowing or building other stuff, inertia with React is pretty common. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I mean, I do think React keeps getting more popular because React is already popular and it's sort of become the snowball yes. effect, which you can see somewhat in the PHP world with Laravel as Laravel got more popular, more people chose it, and then more people started building things for it because Laravel is popular. It sort of becomes a self-fulfilling, you know, the snowball effect of popularity. Yeah. 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 So if you were to build this app, so you said Laravel new, by default, what is going to make the difference for you between Breeze and Jetstream? Is it you always pick one or the other, or is there it depends there as well? I would probably always pick Breeze, actually. Yeah. Even though Jetstream has more features out of the box, Breeze Mm -hmm. is just no, there's nothing hidden, there's nothing behind the scenes that is running code. So that's really appealing to me. It has been in our backlog, actually, for a while to try to build a more Breeze version of Jetstream where Mm. all the code was exported to your app. Yeah, I love that. Um, So it would look bulkier from the outset because yeah. nothing is hidden. And that's, that's kind of why I hid things in jet streams. Cause like, man, if we put all of this in your app, it just feels like there's so much stuff in here. Um, but yeah. I think it's just more beneficial to have that all right there at your fingertips and to be able to change it if you need to, or tweak the logic a little bit without jumping through some sort of weird hooking into some hook system in Jetstream. Yeah. So I would pretty much always pick breeze just because I have total control over the whole stack and uh, can kind of go from there. With Jetstream, you don't even have a React option. So, I mean, if you want to use React, like yeah. you're definitely choosing Breeze. Yep. So, yeah, that would be my my choice, I think. Yeah, and that's me too. I would pick Breeze, and I've always wondered whether how much of my choice for Breeze is because I'm an old head Laravel person who remembers make off, and my brain still thinks there, and how much of it is like if someone were to choose it today, I would still recommend them pick Breeze. But every single time I've advised somebody, I kind of help them think through like what are your needs and what are the constraints of your project. And nine times out of 10, I still recommend that they use Breeze. And not to say anything negative about but Jetstream, but it's that same thing of like, you can reason about where the things are, customizing them makes more sense to your brain. Yes, there's more, more code in, you know, published in your application, but it's still worth it. So same for yeah. me. Yeah, I think if Breeze would have been written first, I'm not sure if I would have gone on to write Jetstream. You know, I wrote Jetstream first, yeah. and then there was sort of an outcry for something simpler, which led me to yeah. write Breeze in response and Breeze, yeah. it really is it really is kind of the spiritual successor to the old make auth command that used to exist in Laravel. It just feels like really light and easy to use. Yeah, so that's that's why I would pick it. Okay. So you've done Laravel new, you've done Breeze. We've talked about what, you know, Livewire versus React. And so now let's talk mm-hmm. about your internal hosting thing. 
your local development environment. I think last time we talked, you said, I'm using PHP Artisan Serve. Are you using that? <laughs> yeah. And what are you using for databases? Are you in DB Engine or? I'll backtrack to the PHP Artisan Serve thing. So I think when I first got my my latest laptop, which is the M1 MacBook, which I'm still mm-hmm. on, I did try to roll with PHP Artisan Serve for like as long as possible. I just want to see, you know, how uh-huh. far can I actually make it before I have to install anything else besides just PHP. So no Nginx, nothing yeah. like that. And I did make it a while. Um, it got, I think what broke me down and made me go to valet at the time was needing to have two sites talk to each other, kind of like a Laravel Sanctum mm. API auth yeah. sort of thing where you have to put them on like different ports if you're using PHP Artisan Serve and yep. it gets kind of cumbersome. So that's when I put yeah. valet back in place. And now I'm on uh, Herd, which is basically a, a GUI mm-hmm. on top of valet, more a forked valet, more or less. So I think Laravel Herd is really cool. There's things about Herd I want to tease, but I just can't tease them yet. Got but it. I think Herd will be a cool thing into the future. So that's what I'm on right now. I do use DB Engine for MySQL and Redis. I have used Docker a couple of times for things like Elasticsearch and Miley Search, but pretty much DB Engine. Yeah, same here. I mean, so for and for those who don't know, I've said this on Twitter, but not everybody's on Twitter. Herd is on top of a forked valet, and we're working on merging the fork, fork back in. Marcel and I are. So like people are like, I don't know, I'm loyal to valet. I, I, it's valet. Yeah, on, it's still thing. valet. It's just a GUI on valet. And one of the things Marcel and I talked about when he launched this, I was just like, hey, I would love to make it so that you don't have to do every change I make to valet, you then have to make to, to herd. Can we make it so that I'm still maintaining the core underlying architecture and you're just building a GUI on top of it? And he's like, I'd much prefer that versus now taking on the responsibility of all the maintenance of valet, you know, as a fork and then all the maintenance of herd. So we've already got a PR open to merge them together. So in my mind, it's exactly what you said, which is herd is just a GUI on top of valet. It might add a few things, but the goal is if some, the herd does something super cool, I'll probably try and add that into valet as well, right? Like that's the goal. So I would definitely, personally, yeah. I'm running Valet. I have an instance of Herd running for testing things, but just because I got my Valet set up, I just kind of do that. Um, and then I use DB Engine. It's the absolute best experience I've ever had for setting up any of the main databases that it handles. For anything that it doesn't handle, um, every once in a while I try Homebrew. Every time I do Homebrew, I'm like, that was the wrong decision. And then I go and use Takeout. And for those who don't know, Takeout's a, um, a basically a layer on top of Docker. It's a, a PHP package you run locally, and it spins up a little server just for Elasticsearch or another server just for that little local mail client or whatever. So if there's any dependency that you're like, oh, I need to have this server up and running, I'd highly recommend trying doing it in a Docker container using something like Takeout rather than trying to manage it yourself. Because even if you get it working up front, when it breaks, debugging those things in Homebrew can be such a pain and waste so much time. If it breaks in in Docker, you just delete the Docker instance and you just spin it up again. It's just so much easier. All right, so that's our local development. So, what editor are you using? Oh, I'm in VS Code. Okay. I always go back and forth between like, oh, is this the time I'm going to go back to PHP Storm? Because I used PHP Storm religiously for a while until my laptop just couldn't run it effectively. Switched to VS Code at that point, and now I've got a fast computer again. But I'm just so embedded mm-hmm. in VS Code that I'm like, I know I will get some value from PHP Storm, but I don't know if I want the changing changing cost again. What about you? Yeah, I'm still in Sublime Text. Oh, sublime shoot. Text. All right. I think I said Sublime Text 4 these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's funny. For That's... the longest time, one of my most popular posts was setting up Sublime Text 3 for PHP developers. I was a Sublime Text. I mean, I was a, I was there yeah. for quite a while. I mean, what about... Let's talk about the things people really want to know. What color scheme, what font are you using in your <laughs> editor? <laughs> All right. In your editor. Let me pull this up. 
Let's see. All right. So I got iTerm 2. iTerm 2 colors are using Solarized Dark. And I think I'm using right. whatever the PHP Storm font is. I'm on Mono Lisa for my font. Oh, I don't know that one. I think it's a paid font. Some trendy mm-hmm. boutique monospace font. Got it. My mm-hmm. color scheme is I'm still on inspired GitHub, which I've been on for a long time, mm-hmm. years, pretty much. Yeah, so that's that's my setup. And of course, I've got my line height or yeah, line height pretty respectably high, high. as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you, but because I use Vim on the terminal often, I have to use a um, special font for that because I have a Vim plugin called Powerline. So I have to mm. find somebody who's converted the font I'm working with for Powerline. So my terminal font is actually never the same as my IDE font. So I'm using Deja Vu Sans Mono for Powerline for my iTerm and then Solarize Dark. And then let me go check out what my VS Code is. I don't even know how to find this. Oh, I'm using JetBrains Mono. Yeah, so that's what it is. I, I did gotcha. not expect it to be so good. It's a really, really, really solid font. Like I had switched fonts so many yeah. different times and then I've got this one and haven't thought about it since they released it. It's a really solid font. Yeah, that's cool. I had different themes for whether it was dark or light for a little while there, but now I think I just stick with this one bright one. But how do you even find that? How do you find that? Oh, Adam One Light. Also found it and have just stuck in it for the longest time. Yeah, and then my popular. dark one was the material material theme ocean yeah. high contrast. So nice. For, if I'm going to go with a dark color scheme, I don't want to stick on this mm-hmm. too long. But if I, if I want to go on a dark I mean, color scheme, I think my favorite is a uh, night owl by I think it's by Sarah Drasner. Oh, okay. I didn't know she made themes. Oh, yeah, I think she made night that theme. Owl. It's pretty nice. Oh, so it says, I just saw it in IntelliJ. It's Night Owl theme and color scheme based on Sarah Drasner's VS Code. Okay, so she made one yeah. for VS Code, yeah. Yep. Very cool. Theme, Sarah. I'll, I'll look it up and link in the show notes. I've never seen that one before. I'm trying to get like a, a quick picture of it, but it's not showing up in Google. So, okay. So back to our topic. All right, so you started this um, thing. Are there any packages that you install on every single app or are all of the packages that you're working with going to be? It depends. So... I think the only package I can think of that I tend to reach for pretty quickly is the Spotsy once package. Yeah. Which is a little function that I originally wrote actually in one of my own projects and that, you know, Frake at Spotsy asked me if he could kind of package up into a package and I was like, sure. But basically what it is, is it's a function called once you pass it a closure the results of that closure are only evaluated once per request. So let's imagine within the closure, you make a database query to get some eloquent models where I find myself using it is like on a form request. So I'll have a form request with maybe a method on it. That's like, let's call it servers for forge in a forge context mm-hmm. that servers method does return once and then a function and it, it gets some servers out of the database. And now no matter if my controller calls that servers method a couple times, Mm-hmm. I only actually pull the servers once from the database. So it's like a memoization type of package, yes. which is super useful. So of course I could always just like call the method once and assign it to like a variable and pass that around. But it's just sort of really convenient to be able to call the method and know that it actually doesn't matter because it's only hitting the database one time. So I pull yeah. that into pretty much everything I write uh, more or less. I even have like a to-do mm-hmm. on my Laravel 11 checklist to be like, should this just be part of Laravel? Because I'm pulling it into every package or every project. Yeah. Other than that, there's not necessarily a package. I'm just like always pulling into every project necessarily. 
Yeah. If there is every, anything I'm pulling in everyone, it's always based on a dependency. Like if I'm going to put in bug snag, I'll pull, put in the bug snag one. But there's from a package perspective, there's not. I don't use one once enough because I like it. But every time I end up doing memoization myself and then think later, huh. And one of the biggest issues with memoization is that there's not all the time, but every once in a while, just one sneaks through. And you you realize you're not hitting the memoized version or you think you did, but mm-hmm. it didn't work quite right. And then you, mm-hmm. you know, something's a little bit slower than you want. And then you look at the, the query log and you're like, oh, I didn't catch that there. And with once, you just say every single time I make the call, it's going to go through once. And then you don't have to worry about it. It feels a little bit kind of free, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so speaking of third-party services, do you, if you can't answer this because you don't want to kind of like weigh in on, you know, like any political drama, but do you have any like, this is my favorite CI/CD service, this is my favorite bug tracking service, anything like that? I can share mine, but if you don't, do you have any or do you not feel super comfortable sharing them because you don't want to weigh we in actually too use, much? We use Sentry and Bugsnag, so I don't have to choose one because okay. we, use, we use both yeah. at the moment. I think Forge is on Sentry and some of our other stuff is on Bugsnag. We use Pusher a lot uh, on Forge mm-hmm. and on Vapor and on Envoyer. Um, we use we're heavy users of Pusher for WebSockets and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, we use Postmark for email, so we're we're typically using yeah, that. Same. Oh, what other third party things do we use? I think for most CI stuff, we're mainly just using like GitHub Actions, like if we're to run tests mm-hmm. and things like that. Those I are our main else. services. Yeah. I would I can think of. Yeah, Postmark for mail for us for sure. We've used Bugsnag for the longest time because they were really active sponsors of everything Laravel at the beginning. And mm-hmm. later, Honey Badger and Sentry came along, and we kind of toyed around with them. But what we found is that we are on either Bugsnag or Flare for everything. Spotsy's Flare is pretty good. And what I found is that sometimes the Laravel community thing can be sort of like not quite as good as the parent one, but you want to support it. But we found that Flare and Chipper CI are both really good. Those are like a, that's a Laravel specific CI and a Laravel specific error tracker. I'm a fan of both of those. Um, yeah. But GitHub Actions is just more convenient for us than any third party CI service. So I would say if I was going to use a third party CI service, it would be Chipper, but we're using GitHub Actions for everything for CI. We use either Bugsnag or Flare for everything. Postmark for mailing, 100%. Um, there are a couple other services we used to use in the past. Um, we use this one service for um, heartbeat monitoring until it got added to, to Envoyer. And so now we just use Envoyers. Um, yeah. I think that's it. Oh, yeah, Algolia. Do, um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We use Algolia. We actually do use Chipper CI for a project or two. Um, what was the other thing you mentioned? Um, Flare. I don't Flare. think uh, we use Odeer, but we're not using Flare. I don't think, but we okay. do use Odeer for uptime monitoring, uh, which is you know kind of by the the same folks. Yeah, yeah. O- we don't use Odeer because we had our own uptime monitoring system built already. But if we had not, we mm-hmm. absolutely would have used it because it's sort of like it's just out of the box and it's Laravel native. You know, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's talk about hosting. If you were building this baseline software as a service, you had not hit scale. They want to start having users uh, for it. You know soonish but you didn't expect it to have the taylor effect meaning you didn't expect that you're going to have you know ten thousand people signing up on day one would you start on vapor or would you start on forge i think me personally i would probably start on vapor yeah even though the aws infrastructure is more complicated it's just so nice to not have to worry about operating system updates certificate mm-hmm. renewals, um, even things like database backups because you get basically point-in-time backups with RDS. So if I was going to build anything that I was 
trying to make a serious business, even though I wasn't, didn't expect like some huge scale right off the bat, I feel like you are kind of saving yourself some headache. If you can go ahead and swing vapor right from the start. Yeah. That being said, forge is obviously really simple to use. You can throw multiple sites on one server. It's more cheap and probably overall. So, you know, it's tough, but I think if I was going to build a SaaS, like a real, I'm going to try to launch a business. I think I'm going to pick vapor. Yeah. For those reasons I stated. Okay. Um, so moving on from there, I don't, I, I actually am, I've got to say, I'm not as familiar with vapor as I am with forge only because I've been using forge since day one. So I still use forge and most things from a comfort perspective. We have clients on vapor. We have yeah. people at Titan who know vapor super well, but I'm not like the vapor guy. So I don't even always know what you can do. If you and my, my next question was literally, do you use Horizon on every one? Do you use Telescope on every one? So I'm going to ask, like, are things like that any more difficult to use in Vapor, or can you use those off the bat? And then also, do you use them on every app or just sometimes? So Horizon, you don't really need on Vapor. One of the main features of Horizon was the auto scaling stuff, like being able to scale mm-hmm. up your workers up and down. But Vapor automatically scales really high automatically sure. anyway, so you sort of get that. And we have sort of a queue dashboard in the Vapor UI where you can see like how many jobs you have, all of that. So it's just not really necessary. Okay. Uh, telescope is fine. Like you can always use Telescope if you want on Vapor, um, just like you could on... Do you use Telescope in production? We don't really use Telescope in production, no. That's us too. Yeah, yeah. I've used it locally some, but yeah, we've never shipped it to production as far as I know. Do you do... I remember in the early days of Forge, one of the, the third-party services you would connect to is Paper Trail, which for those who don't mm-hmm. know, it's like a log aggregator. You send all your logs there and you can set like, if a log of this sort or too many logs of that sort happen, then you can hook it into Slack notifications or Paper Pager Duty or whatever else. And it's all this like very easy to navigate, much easier than like SSH in the server and then like grep through things. We thought it was really cool, but never found ourselves actually using it because I think in part because it's just a little more than a lot of our projects need, but also as a consultancy Usually by the time somebody's big enough to need that, their ops team is owning that. And so we weren't the ones setting up. So I'm wondering, is that something that you use at all? Like, do you all do anything that is for your logs or do you really look at the logs manually when you need We them? do still ship our logs to Paper Trail um, and we have for, we okay. have for years, although it is so rare that we actually go out and diagnose any problems that way. Usually we can mm-hmm. see what we need to see either in Sentry or Bugsnag or whatever. I can't even remember, honestly, a time when we needed to go out to paper trail and like actually dig through the log files. I, I can't even remember a time we've done got that. It. We still do it just because it feels like got to do something with these logs, I guess. Option. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. So let's see. I'm looking through our to-do lists of other things that we... I, I think we're going to talk about... Oh, so real quick, because we're already on servers. We just ran into the situation recently where one of our servers had heartbeats set up But the problem is the heartbeats. So for those who are not familiar, heartbeats is sort of like every single time your queued job gets queued. So every time a command runs, it sends a ping out to Envoy or Odir or whatever else and says, yep, I'm still running. And so it helps you make sure that your scheduler is running. It helps you make sure that, you know, that the right jobs are getting sent without failing at the right time because you can have it like send the heartbeat after the job is pushed. So there's nothing you can know that nothing got failed, you know, in the pushing. But what had not happened was 
the queue worker didn't get turned back on after restart because there was a typo in the queue worker kind of spinning up. And so like the jobs are getting pushed, the queue is building up and nothing was actually happening to make sure the queue is running. And it's funny because I actually pointed them to a blog post on the Titan blog written by Jameson Valenta that says how to make sure your queues are still running or something. Mm -hmm. And he had this idea of how to like sort of do a heartbeat within the queue process to make sure it's running. So I feel like we've got a pretty good process set up there. But I I wanted to see like, do you have any suite of things you do to make sure you know, like you, I, you said you use Odir, so it's going to be doing like uptime monitoring, stuff like that. I'm assuming you do heartbeats and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. what what's your kind of default for just making sure the servers are running the way they should be? So we do use the queue monitor command, which is, I guess, relatively new in the Laravel history of things. So it's basically a mm-hmm. command you can schedule. So it's not like a it's not a, like a daemon or a long running service like the queue worker. It's a scheduled job that runs every minute. And you can specify that you want it to notify you if the queue has X number of jobs waiting. Mm -hmm. So we use that as sort of a sanity check in terms of, you know, make sure the queue doesn't have thousands of jobs on it and we're totally unaware. We also use like the Forge monitoring stuff that's just built into Forge so it can notify us if the disk space gets too high, if the CPU is too high, if the memory usage is too high. And then part mm-hmm. of this question really relates to why we built Laravel Pulse, which is to try to help you get a grip on some of these things in production. Mm-hmm. So Laravel Telescope is very much for local development. Laravel Pulse is a little bit more of a production-themed type of package oh, cool. to, try to, to try to get an overview of some of these things. So I'll let Jess kind of demo that next week, but that is part of why we built that package as well. So yeah, we're using like, Got it. Um, I guess there's also, there's Q monitor. There's also, I think it's DB monitor that will make sure, see how many like database connections are currently open against your hmm. database and tell you if that is too high because you can actually, you know, exhaust the num- number of available connections on your, on your database. So there's a few just like built in options in Laravel and Forge that we use, but nothing really beyond that, I would say. Okay. Yeah, we we don't do the Q monitor or the DB monitor. And I'm glad you mentioned those. We will try those. Yeah. One of the things I want to do is just tell people like baseline on our apps, we should do X, Y, and Z every single time we push to production to make sure that we don't in the future hit a point where one of our servers is just not running the queue. Yeah. And it's sort of like there's not one package. It's more like a system of processes. So I'm like, I kind of want to have just like a little gist somewhere that says every time we deploy a server for the first time, we need to make sure X is happening, Y is happening, Z is happening to make sure that this is just like the baseline, make sure it's running. So I will be working on that. I'm very excited to see Pulse. I don't know what it is. It's fun. Sometimes I know these things ahead of time because whether I'm talking to you, other folks at at Laravel, I get to like, you know, I'm a part of coding and I'm part of testing it. And with Pulse, I have literally no idea. But you telling me that it's in this arena, I'm like, very cool. I'm very excited about that. All right. So the next set of things I have is a little bit more about the code. So the first thing I want to say is, or ask is, do you ever use any sort of bin scripts or any other things outside of factories and stuff? Like what is the process of making it easier for you to spin it up on a new instance of this or other people at, at Laravel to do it? Do you write out the steps in the readme? Is it the same on every project so you don't need to write it out? Do you make bin scripts? Like what's that process look like for you? Mainly in the readme for us, I think it would actually be cool if we had more automation around some of this stuff around, especially around forge, because mm-hmm. it can be a little bit of a bear to set up locally because you're building servers, you're SSHing into servers. Uh, but most of it's just in the readme right now. But yeah, I would like to transition to something a little bit better in that regard. All of our projects, unfortunately, are just sort of like a pain to set up locally. You know, Vapor, Forge, yeah. Envoy, they all are sort of these server management tools. They're not like simple SaaS tools that just talk yeah. to a database, which would be super nice. Yeah. Um, I wish they were. So yeah. yeah, that's where we're at right now. 
Yeah. I've been teaching about bin scripts for the longest time, and I would say maybe a, a fifth of my projects actually have like a setup.sh and an update.sh. Yeah. And even when I have them, like not everybody remembers to do them all the time. I think that's why I don't use them as much is because it's there. And then not everybody who joins the project knows to use it. And therefore, it's not updated and sort of sort of like to me, the readme is the most sustainable long term way to make sure that like everybody at Titan, when you spin up a new repo, the first thing you do or a new instance of repo, the first thing you do is look at the readme. So if your installation steps are in the readme, then they're good. And every time I assign a, like a new hire or somebody who's never been this project before, the first thing I tell them is set it up. And if the steps in the readme don't get you there. Your first job is to fix the readme to, with whatever you had to do outside what's in the readme. So we can always kind of be making sure that even if it's not quite right, your first job at, at, as you're assigned to this project is to make sure the readme is right. Yeah, makes sense. Um, okay, so let's talk about – I want to talk about Cedars because we're already talking about setup. So what what is your Cedar naturally – like, again, you're making a brand new app. We're not talking about Vapor or, or Forge as much. You're making a brand new app. Are you going to make a Cedar that is purely just, you know – one user with 10 instances of whatever the primary item is that are all factoried or are you more kind of carefully curating like this is the setup i want them to be you know where you're actually manually stubbing out like a project name this with an item name this or does it really depend on you know the needs of the project so the last project i worked on i wrote pretty carefully my cedars to like actually seed out the whole world with realistic data, which was actually super yeah. useful. It was super useful just from clicking around the app from that perspective, but then also for testing because you have this sort of robust set of data that you can pull in your tests and make sure things work well. And I know Jonathan Rennick does this as well, where he'll write very thorough seeders and then he'll write like a, you know, say he needs a user with three projects, but their email's not verified and all these situations. And he'll like create a user for that specific situation. They always exist in the seed mm -hmm. data. Then he'll leverage that in the test. So I think it's actually really useful to write good seeders and good factories and it gives you a lot of power in terms of testing and clicking around your app. Um, so yeah, that's what I do. I agree. I personally really have found an incredible amount of value in cedars that are not just like oh this needs to be an integer but cedars that are forcing it to be the right integer that would actually be realistic and i've done a couple projects lately that have to do with analyzing the you know basically giving a final score and a whole bunch of graphs based on the financials of a business or financials of a project or something like that and if i just throw a cedar in there this is supposed to be an integer this is supposed to be whatever i can end up getting divided by zero numbers or i can get numbers where you know, it's trying to give me a graph of how this business is doing over time. And one of them is like, you got a score of two and then next year you got a score of 98 and the next year you have a score of three. It's just not re realistic. And so I miss some like sort of user interface, you know, kind of like edge cases or whatever, because it's not actually what it should look like. And it's also harder for the client to actually test. Mm -hmm. So what I found is that I'm finding value in setting up robust basic cedars, but then making those cedars as much as possible, able to generate a more realistic set of data that is closer to what, not just in terms of the types of data, but how the various like attributes relate to each other. And this is not true for every project, but like, for example, if you're talking about the health of a business, you're not going to have, you know, 50 employees and then an operating cost of a million dollars, right? You're going to have 10 employees and an operating cost of a million or 50 and an operating cost of 20, whatever, you know, like, like those, these things are relative to each other. So what I've found is that the factory itself usually is just like, give me numbers, but then the cedars have to say, yeah, okay, give me a, a factory version of this particular thing. But normally I'll say like, 
their baseline whatever, like baseline revenue number, their baseline number of employees or something is this, you know, which is generated by Faker. And then every other number is modifying that core number by one and a half or by some number between 0.75 and one and a half, right? So that all the numbers are relative to each other enough that it's a little bit, and it takes a lot more work to do it that way, but it ends up with much more realistic numbers. The other thing I've run into lately is that I've often working with companies where they've developed some kind of formula, like an Excel or something like that. And they're like, can you build this as a web app? We get that all the time where somebody's built something and they're like, I need a web app version of this. So what I do often is I make a, a single like cedar that's often in like just a JSON file or whatever, that is the output of all of their formulas. Literally like they'll, cause they'll give you like, they'll give me a, a sample Excel document and say, here's what you can imagine this particular company's version of this calculation looks like. I'm like, great. I take all those numbers down. I put in them in an adjacent document. And then each one of my tests first just runs those numbers into each calculation and asserts that the output is the output on their Excel document. Right? So there's both like my normally seated ones, but for the tests, I'm like, if, if I put in the data that they have in their Excel spreadsheet and I get out the data that their, their Excel spreadsheet calculates, that means I'm doing it right. And then I can do a lot of TDD there. Cause of course at the beginning, none of them are given that right number. And as I write each formula, it goes that way. Mm. So I'm finding that like there's depending on the specific needs, there's a lot of different ways I might want to go about it. But each one is like, of course, that's the most work, right? And the next most work is the one where I was talking about making sure the numbers are most relevant to each other. And the simplest one is just building really great factories. But no matter what, we at least have to have really good factories in a cedar, right? Like you don't want an app where you don't have the ability to get data in without actually clicking through the thing. Right. So that's kind of how we look at yeah. it. All right. I got two more questions for us, and then I think it's going to be time to wrap. So the first question is, how do you do commit names? Are you, are you a whipper or do you actually kind of write them out? If it's early in the project, I'll just do whip or whatever. I think, you yeah. know, for more established projects like Forge and Vapor, we do tend to have commit messages and everything mm-hmm. kind of gets squashed down anyway. When we merge PRs, okay. like we'll squash all the commits with one message, more or less. So it doesn't okay. really matter a lot most of the time what the in between messages are because I don't actually usually go look at each individual commit. I'm just looking at the overall picture. But yeah, early on in a project, yeah. I'm just like whipping like crazy. I actually have just like an alias on my shell where if I type whip, it like commits and pushes to the <laughs> repo. So I love uh, it. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's the point if you're super early in a project when it's just you, especially if it's just you hacking on yeah. something, what's the point? But uh, yeah. yeah. And those early commits are often like, Install Laravel, install Breeze, spin up. There's just 20 different things and writing a commit that encompasses that is wild. And for those who don't know, WIP is W-I-P, meaning work in progress. So there have been times where like if I'm committing something pretty substantial and I'm like, I kind of want to remember where this is in the Git history, I will actually write like a little note. (laughs) But most of the time, early on a project, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. We don't actually even merge. We don't squash when we merge a PR, but we still say like, yeah, we're, it's going to stay in GitHub long term. And so you can always just go search for the PRs and find it. And so it's sort of like, you know, but if you squash the PR, for those who don't know, even if there's tw- 10 commits that are all named and then you squash those commits when you merge the PR, by default, GitHub will still take the commit messages of every single one of those 10 and they'll put it in the body of the Git commit. So it's still there. It's just not the primary title. So you still can kind of search for it and find it and everything. So. All right. The last one is by default, what does your testing situation look like? And by that, I mean, are you doing TDD all the time or some of the time? Are you doing more kind of snapshot tests? Are you testing against cedars? Are you testing against factory code in every single test where you're like, I built the scenario I'm testing against in this code? Or are you doing it more like the Renick way that you're talking about? So like, what does your default kind of approach to testing look like? 
I rarely do straight up TDD where I'm writing the test first. I feel like that's pretty rare. I usually write, mm-hmm. let's say I write the controller and, and all of that. And then I'll come back and test that all as a feature test. Mm-hmm. You know, the one controller method, like let's say I write the index method on a controller. I'll write the test for that after Yeah. on like beep, which is sort of one of the later projects I've worked on. I was just using seed data to test basic stuff. And then I'll use factories to test like edge cases So if I need to create users in invalid states or in weird situations that I don't actually want to seed into the database for like when I click around the app, I'll use factories to kind of create those situations. But for your more like happy path tests, I'll just use my seed data to make sure everything looks good. Got it. I am similar except for I'm a staunch, uh, if it's getting tested in the test, I want to have seeded the thing that's getting tested in that test. But I'll Mm -hmm. still often have like a baseline seed that sets the app up because often it's like you need the user, you need the team, you need the project or whatever. But if Mm -hmm. if I'm testing that the project shows a certain piece of data on a certain page, I will want to have seeded that data explicitly earlier in the test just so that new people coming along can say, oh, we're looking for that phrase and that phrase is here. But I don't need to build out the entire world around it. You know, other than just by saying load seeder at the in the setup method or something like that. Yeah. Similarly, I do straight TDD primarily if it's these sort of like I've been given a calculation that I already know needs to be 46 in the end, given this data. I write the 46, it's red, and then I write it until it's green. Like that's what yeah. I'm doing the TDD, but I'm not doing TDD for controllers and forms and stuff like that. Right. It's more like yeah. build the thing the way you want and then write the test after to make sure it works. So well, that is it for my queue of things to talk about. Is there anything you think we missed about like what is building a new app look like? Or do you think we covered most of the ones that are most interesting to talk about? No, I think that was a good overview of the decisions that have to be made. And it's crazy. Like, I mean, the decisions are so different based on if you're building something by yourself versus you're working in a company yeah. and you have to onboard yeah. other people. I think that leads you down sort of different paths. Um But yeah, I think that's a good overview of what it looks like to start a new Laravel app these days. I love it. Well, I really appreciate you kind of jumping into some of the more in-depth things. I know people always are very curious about how you build. And, you know, of course, like you're building a whole world for us all to work with. But then sometimes you you can't build, you pick all the options when you pick an app. You still have to kind of narrow in. So thank you for kind of like stepping into some of those examples with us. And definitely a note to me to check out QMonitor. So I I got some value out of this. And very, very, very excited to see Pulse. Like very excited to see this. So yeah. Maybe you all will already know what it is by the time this comes out, but I don't think it'll have been launched quite yet then. So, all right. Well, thank you all for tuning in. And Taylor, thanks for hanging out. We'll see you all next time. All right. Thanks. See ya. (laughs) 